0: From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. This is Monday, November 13, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin.
1: And I'm Chris Bengert-Drowns. Today on the show, the growing influence of deep fakes in political campaign ads, and why natural disasters are particularly risky for public housing residents,
0: and Exonerated Central Park Five member Youssef Salam wins a seat on the New York City Council.
1: All that and more. Stay with us. The exonerated Central Park Five member Youssef Salam will represent a central Harlem district on the City Council after winning the race last week. Looking back on his journey, reporter Asia Beckham shares how he transformed pain
2: into power. It's the strangest thing in the world to me. I was telling the officers the truth, and they took my words and they twisted it. I said, I'm going to go to the cops, and I'm going to tell them what I saw, and I'll be home before my mom gets back. (laughs) <laughs> I came home seven years later. My name is Yusuf Salam. I'm one of the uh, Central Park Five. We were in the park, and there was a lot of things that. People were doing a lot of mischief-making, people throwing rocks at cars, you know, uh, harassing people. The things that I saw that night should have given me an indication to leave. The next day, I was told that police officers were looking for me. And they kept asking me, "Okay, tell us about the jogger. I'm like, "I I don't know what you're talking about. And then it began, Okay, tell us your story all over again. 400 articles written, and all of these articles were pulling apart our lives. Donald Trump took out full page ads in New York City's newspapers calling for the reinstatement of the death penalty specifically for our case. In my trial, they said Yusuf Salam doesn't have a written or videotaped confession, but the others do. This is what some of the others have said about his involvement, and as a result of that, I was convicted. sent me up to a place called Harlem Valley we were there for a crime that we didn't commit and you know here we were looking at officers they looked like bodybuilders some of them had tattoos of black and brown babies with nooses around their necks on their arms it was almost like a signal like a like I'm not gonna tell you how bad it's gonna be just look at my tattoos you know Get out of line, and we will bury you up here. When I came home from prison, I was branded a rapist. For years, I would be walking around in this fog and, you know, just trying to put one foot in front of the other and figure life out again. And then 13 years later, the truth comes out in, 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 in the most amazing way. When the police found out about... Matias Reyes's story about the facts that he told them, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he raped the Central Park jogger. And when they finally said that they were dropping the charges, it was the happiest day of my life. Nelson Mandela said, being angry, being bitter is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die it doesn't do anything to the person it does everything to you but i'm still haunted being free is free like you're free from all of the things that held you back i'm not free like that
3: That was Yusuf Salam for the Marshall Project. In 2014, the city of New York agreed to pay $41 million to the five men who were between the ages of 14 and 16 when wrongly convicted of a rape and assault. In the early 2002, Mateus Reis, the convicted murderer and rapist, admitted that he alone was responsible for the attack on the Central Park jogger. Former President Donald Trump said in 2019 that he would not apologize for his comments about the Central Five. Yusuf Salam just won the city council seat in Harlem, New York, the state where his life was interrupted at the age of 15. He campaigned on easing poverty and combating gentrification in the predominantly black neighborhood. One of the members of the exonerated Central Park Five introduced Salam, who then gave this victory speech.
2: When they built the fire to consume us, they forgot the owner of the heat. I got my wife by my side. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: We woke up this morning, and even though it was a gloomy day, the sun was still shining above the clouds. I got my family here with me. I got one one-fifth of the Central Park five exonerated
4: cars here with me.
2: Listen. I don't want to straight to off script. You know I have to write some of this stuff down. I like to I like to flow, I like to feel the moment. No, no. Yep. Y'all know just the other day was my mama's birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday. <laughs> yes. Listen, let me get at it. Let me get at it. Thank you, my brother from another mother, Raymond Santana, for that beautiful introduction. Yeah. Yeah. Today we stand here together, not as separate individuals, but as a united force that has com- collectively triumphed over adversity, as a community that has, chained, that has chosen hope over fear, and as a movement that has embraced the power of generational change. I am deeply humbled and honored to stand before you as the newly elected city councilman for the legendary Village of Harlem. And you know, I want to thank every one of you, each and every one of you for your unwavering support and for your belief in our vision for a better future rooted in fairness, equality, and justice. This campaign has been an incredible journey, one that has reaffirmed my faith in the resilience and determination of the people in our city. While I was a teenager sitting in a cell, forgotten by the masses, it was my family and my community that made sure that wasn't the end of my journey. My liberation, represented the collective efforts of many of you standing here right now, and tonight begins my opportunity to free us from being overlooked and
4: underserved.
2: Tonight represents the part of the story where the main character uses what they've seen at the worst to become their very best. And while tomorrow we begin the hard work of legislation, tonight we mark the beginning of another chapter in God's love story to his people. (laughs) (laughs) We embark on this mission with a shared dream, a dream of a brighter, inclusive, prosperous future for us all, where equality is not just a buzzword but a living reality. Right. I'm proud to say that our collective efforts have borne fruit and we are one step closer to being the change we want to see. Amen. Amen. But we must be honest about the challenges ahead of us. I gotta be honest about it.
4: Yeah.
2: I stand before you today at a time of great crisis. Our city is at the crossroads and we must decide what we want New York to be and who we want to govern and serve. Yeah. Who, who we want them to govern and serve. New York itself. Yeah. Do we care for the less fortunate or prioritize the funders?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Will we live up to the value of a famous statue in our harbor
4: mm-hmm.
2: and a beacon of light in a world of darkness?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Are we a city that has the heart, the ability, the drive to help those who are struggling to maintain, thrive in a world of growing inequity? These are the big questions New Yorkers face, but fundamentally the question we have to ask ourselves is simple. Do we want to be a city that recognizes that we are our brothers and our sisters' keepers? That we are at our best when we are together and not apart. That when we see our humanity in one another, we are better and not worse. For too long, Harlem has been stuck in neutral, unable to maximize the talent that made our streets famous. But tonight, we turn the page and begin our new Harlem Renaissance. Yes, indeed. A renaissance filled with good jobs, real economic opportunities, better schools, more affordable housing, safe communities, and vibrant, joyful streets.
3: Yes. yes.
2: The, this victory is not about me. I want y'all to understand this. This victory is not about me. It's about you. Yes. My brothers and sisters of Harlem, you. you cast your votes with a clear mandate for change and a commitment to equity and restorative justice and I promise to honor that mandate every day I serve as your elected representative. I am committed to working tirelessly to holistically address the challenges we face. It is my mandate to create opportunities for all and to build a community where every voice is heard and every life is valued. I am humbled by the trust that you have placed in me and I take this responsibility with the utmost seriousness. I pledge to be a leader who listens, seeks common ground, and is dedicated to the progress of all of our people. I pledge to you here today to be a true public servant for our village. Together we we will write, we will rewrite, we will write, we will rewrite, we will write, we will rewrite the next chapter of our story. Ensuring you know it's all he's in his hip hop, (laughs) y'all. Listen. Together, my sister said it right, so I gotta say it again. Together, we will write we will rewrite the next chapter of our story, ensuring that no one is left behind. We will rebuild our community with the principles of fairness, healing, and progress at the forefront of our efforts. Thank you to this fabulous team for making this dream a reality. Amen. And the hard work is just getting started, y'all. That's
0: right. That's right.
4: We
2: will create the New Harlem Renaissance. Yes. Starting yes. here today, with yes. your help, we will break the shackles of oppression, yes. stifling our potential, and make sure that every single one of us can truly be exonerated. Yes. Once again, thank you. Let's get to work, y'all.
4: Yes.
0: The next major election is less than a year away now, and the stakes are high. From the deep political divide facing the nation to the economy, jobs, voting rights, and threats to democracy itself. Given its commitment to advocate for a fair and equitable democracy, it should come as no surprise that Public Citizen is one of a number of democracy advocacy groups that is working to challenge an emerging threat to the political process and that is the growing use of generative artificial intelligence in campaign advertisements. In other words, what's come to be known as deep fakes. Craig Holman is the government affairs lobbyist for Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on money in politics and governmental ethics. He has been central to efforts by Public Citizen to urge the Federal Elections Commission to take a significantly stronger role in regulating the use of deep fakes in campaign advertisements and their potential to fraudulently misrepresent what candidates have said or done. He joined Monday Morning QB to help us understand the kind of threat we are facing.
5: Yeah, deepfakes fakes are an extreme version of artificial intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence is when someone uses computer technology to fabricate an image or fabricate a whole ad. But it gets really bad when someone uses artificial intelligence to actually depict an actual candidate saying something that he or she never did say or do. That's the deep fake part. And that's, that's where it, it gets dangerous. You know, almost every campaign ad coming up in the future is going to use some form of artificial intelligence to provide very colorful scenery and background. But now they've gotten so good, artificial intelligence has gotten so advanced that it can now actually depict a candidate looking very real like at a news conference and put a his or her voice on that candidate and then make them do things or say things that they have never done designed specifically to damage that candidate or to influence how voters are going to cast their ballots and that's when it gets that's when it gets dangerous you know currently there's almost no laws anywhere not at the federal level And uh, only four states require some sort of disclosure behind deepfakes. So someone can make up these deepfakes and never tell you, hey, this never really happened. We just made this stuff up. And that's going to become a problem.
0: Which, of course, it already has. Deepfakes have been a part of the U.S. political environment for some time now. And what was already an alarming reality is now even more so, as deep fake campaign ads become even more widespread.
5: I do want to point out how big a problem this has now become. The Wall Street Journal estimated that there were maybe 10,000 artificial intelligence ads in 2018 and, and noted that there are well over millions today. So it's becoming a huge problem. And if it goes unchecked, our integrity of elections and democracy itself is at stake.
0: But it isn't just the prevalence of artificial intelligence in politics that has Craig Holman and his colleagues at Public Citizen concerned, and why they have submitted a petition to the FEC. That advocates for federal action to put some guardrails on it. It's the fact that those creating deep fakes for campaign ads are getting better at what they do.
5: That's right. What initiated my petition for rulemaking on behalf of Public Citizen is you know, these types of artificial intelligence have been going on for years, but they've never been good, they've never been effective or, or persuasive. And in this election cycle, we saw artificial intelligence being used very effectively. Following Biden's formal announcement that he's going to run for re-election in 2024, the RNC produced the first entirely fabricated campaign ad using artificial intelligence. First, it showed Biden and Kamala Harris laughing And then it switched to scenes of the uh, collapsing financial market on Wall Street. And then it switched to China bombing Taiwan. And then it showed thousands of illegal immigrants flooding across our borders. And then it finally ended with the scene of San Francisco under complete police lockdown because of drug problems. None of this ever happened. It was all entirely fabricated. And uh, it looked very real. And, and, you know, then others have started using the same type of artificial intelligence to damage their candidates. The one that really sort of kicked off this election cycle besides the RNC ad was Ron DeSantis. He put a fake image of Donald Trump, and it looked just like Donald Trump, talking and then hugging and kissing Dr. Fauci, who's uh, not very popular among Republican circles. And then Trump responded with with a dumb version where he pictured DeSantis schmoozing with Elon Musk and George Soros, which also never happened. But then you could see how dangerous it really got with this Chicago mayoral race where one candidate, Paul Vallis, was depicted falsely as giving a speech condoning police brutality in Chicago. And Paul Vallis, of course, lost that mayoral election, uh, you know, so it's it's just becoming very, very commonplace in the twenty twenty four election cycle, and it's it's going to get increasingly dangerous of course,
0: the damage done by this kind of fraudulent misrepresentation of what candidates say or do can be much more far-reaching than its influence on one particular race as in Chicago. Once voters realize they have been the target of malicious misinformation campaigns, they may feel encouraged not to trust elections, which thereby undermines their faith in democracy itself.
5: That is absolutely right. If we don't have effective disclosure as we approach the 2024 election we're going to see a lot of these outside groups producing entirely fabricated ads that have candidates saying or doing things that they never ever said or or would do and that all look very real and people are going to see these ads and think wow i guess i can't vote for trump if he's going to love dr Fauci." Or I can't support Biden if he's going to start the war again in Afghanistan. And if that ends up misinforming voters and they go into the election and they realize that, hey, they've just been lied to and they don't know the truth, that's going to exacerbate the distrust that Americans have in the electoral process already. We already have a lot of Americans who don't trust elections and if we let these deep fakes saturate our campaign airwaves uh, a lot more people are going to join in in distrusting elections and if you lose confidence in the electoral process democracy is at risk
0: which makes it all that more urgent to take action to blunt the impact of these ads which means at the very least making it easier for voters to be able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not. There has been some action taken by the tech industry to self-regulate. Google unveiled an AI labeling policy for political ads in September. Under their rule, political ads that play on YouTube or other Google platforms will have to disclose the use of AI-altered voices or imagery. And just last week, Meta announced that Facebook and Instagram will require political ads running on their platforms to disclose if they were created using artificial intelligence. That prompted this response from Senator Amy Klobuchar, It's a step in the right direction, but we cannot rely on voluntary commitments, close quote. Sharing that view, Craig Holman questions how far these media platforms will actually go to let us know that these ads are entirely fabricated, which is why Public Citizen proceeded with its petition urging the Federal Elections Commission to formally affirm that deep fakes in U.S. political campaign communications are illegal under an existing law against fraudulent misrepresentation, which begs the question, if the FEC already has a rule against fraudulent misrepresentation, why is a petition necessary?
5: Well, first of all, the FEC has never interpreted artificial intelligence advertising communications to fall under the fraudulent misrepresentation law. They've only applied it directly to candidates talking about what another candidate did. And no one has applied it to these deep fakes yet. And so that's what I'm asking the FEC to do with the petition for rulemaking.
0: This is the second time Public Citizen has taken this approach. In June, the FEC deadlocked on an earlier petition from the group, and it's too early to know what they will do with this one. The FEC, however, did take it a step further this time by opening up the petition for a 60-day comment period that ended last month. But despite the fact that almost all the comments encouraged the FEC to move forward on rulemaking, the agency, which is made up of three Democrats and three Republicans, of course, could deadlock again, given that at least four votes are required for any official commission action.
5: And if they deadlock, that means no rule will actually emerge, and that kills the whole rulemaking process. And so if that happens, we'll see probably in about a month if they are going to deadlock. And if they do, that brings the end to the rulemaking However, if just one of those Republicans in that block says, okay, we should actually take this seriously and start proceeding with some kind of rulemaking, then it will go on for a while longer because then they'll direct the general counsel to draft an actual rule and they've got to then discuss the merits of the rule. Now, I don't really know if the FEC is going to end up deadlocking on this, What I have seen is a number of Republicans have been encouraging the Republican members to move ahead with rulemaking on this. There was a hearing on the FEC before the House Administration Committee about a month or two ago. And even the Republican members of that committee were telling the FEC, this is a dangerous trend. We really need to address this somehow. And so it's unclear to me if the republicans or any one of the republicans has been swayed we'll find out in about a month
0: but even if at least one republican on the fec supports the rulemaking and it does move forward craig holman says that doesn't go far enough
5: it is not enough because the law against fraudulent misrepresentation only applies to candidates. It doesn't apply to outside groups. And uh, the big abusers of deep fakes are going to be these super PACs and outside groups and nonprofit entities, you know, weeks before the election, producing entirely fabricated and false and misleading campaign ads. And uh, that won't be addressed even if the FEC does come up with a responsible rule. Their rule, their statutory authority, only goes to regulating candidates.
0: Which is why Craig Holman says legislative action is necessary in addition to regulatory action if this threat to election integrity is going to be effectively challenged.
5: Uh, There's quite a few efforts that, uh, that I'm pursuing simultaneously with the rulemaking with the FEC. First of all, I have been encouraging Congress to develop effective legislation, and I do know uh, legislation has been introduced and more is forthcoming. And I have drafted a model state law addressing deepfakes, not banning deepfakes, just requiring that it be disclosed in the ad that this is fabricated and it doesn't really happen. There are four states right now that have deep fake laws. It's California, Minnesota, Texas, and Washington. And uh, no other states regulate deep fakes, but a lot of them are moving this way. Michigan, just I think today, passed a deep fake law that now has to go to the governor to be signed. Uh, I know New Hampshire is picking this up, so is Wisconsin. And at at the state legislatures, we're going to see faster action than we'll see out of Congress. And then, by the way, thirdly, even if the FEC doesn't come out with a responsible rule, the mere fact that they have generated the public discussion on this issue has raised public awareness of, hey, I didn't know there was such a thing as artificial intelligence and deep fakes, and I didn't understand how dangerous this could be. But now people are becoming aware of it. So we're seeing a whole public education process in the meantime.
0: And that raises the question, what can we as individual voters do to better protect ourselves against AI-generated deepfakes in politics?
5: Well, first of all, I want the public to become aware of artificial intelligence and deepfakes and so that they know that perhaps the ads they are watching on TV or listening to on the radio or seeing on social media may not actually be real. And just that knowledge in itself is going to empower citizens to be a little more scrutinizing and a little more skeptical of the ads that they're, that they're seeing or, or listening to it's going to be increasingly difficult to be able to figure out if this is a totally fabricated ad or not without disclosure. So I just encourage citizens, voters, to note who the sponsor is behind the ad that they just watched or listened to. If the sponsor is some outside group with some name you've never heard of, Citizens for Good Government, be very suspicious. This may not actually be a real ad. And it may just be a deep fake. Or if the ad itself seems, you know, utterly outrageous, try going online to do a fact check. And if if the news news sources are aware of it, they will start asking questions and documenting that, hey, this is not a real ad. And so there's, there's quite a bit citizens can do. The first thing is just be aware of artificial intelligence and the dangers of deep fakes.
0: Craig Holman is the Government Affairs Lobbyist for Public Citizen in Washington, D.C. You can read more about their work at www.citizen.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
1: This August saw the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in a century, when a blaze tore through the historic town of Lahaina in Hawaii. And only five years ago, the historically expensive Camp Fire decimated the California town of Paradise, where residents are now attempting to rebuild, even with housing insurance out of reach to many. These fires, as with other natural disasters, produced widespread destruction, but with differential effects. Elderly, low-income, and unhoused people are particularly vulnerable to natural disaster, and are often left out of the recovery process. Last week, two major housing rights organizations published a new report examining how disasters impact vulnerable residents of public housing in particular. The report, co-authored by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC, examines the various disaster risks for residents of federally assisted housing and how those risks are compounded by low incomes language barriers and other social phenomena the report in particular highlights the threat of heat waves to public housing residents noah Patton is a senior policy analyst for disaster recovery at nlihc and he says this increased heat risk is due to a range of factors including housing location decisions and low incomes.
6: You know, a low income household is less financially able to weather the disruption of a disaster. Um, you know, like FEMA typically recommends like what having like 500 bucks in cash somewhere in your apartment uh in case of a disaster, but for many very low income and low income households, you know, that's not realistic. And as a result, you know, they experience much more disruption post-disaster than folks with higher incomes that could maybe float a two-week stay at a hotel room if push came to shove. And then at the at the flip side, there's also the kind of spatial element, or the uh, you know, where is affordable housing? Where is federal assisted housing spatially uh, in relation to hazards? And um, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, th- there's been you know, since this country was founded, a push for uh households for low income and very low income individuals to be pushed onto the periphery of society. And coincidentally, those are the areas that are typically impacted by disasters. In fact, you actually have like areas, you know, like in Miami, where actually the uh, lower income neighborhoods are actually in safer areas of that city where actually the reverse is happening. And, um, you know, you have kind of that climate gentrification effect where you're actually directly taking households with low incomes from their safe neighborhoods and pushing them into unsafe areas. Um, So that's this increase in risk due to natural disasters is due to, you know, that kind of legacy of redlining and spatial discrimination of where folks can and cannot live.
1: Turning to solutions, the NLIHC report suggests a range of policy reforms. Um, This includes improving heat resilience through uh, tree canopies, funding for air conditioning. Can you talk about the benefits of of this concept of heat resilience, obviously immediately to tenants, but then also broadly to the environment and to
6: the broader economy? Yeah, I mean, heat waves are an interesting disaster because they are a disaster. Our federal government doesn't respond to heat waves like they do with other disasters, uh, despite the fact that they're actually one of the most deadly disasters. Um, you know, I think, what was it, the 1995 Chicago heat wave resulted in these deaths of 739 people uh, over a period of five days in that city. And most of the victims of that heat wave were, you know, elderly. Uh, lower income residents of the city who could not afford air conditioning or had air conditioning, but uh, couldn't afford to keep it on. So because of that, because of the fact that we kind of view heat waves, I guess, uh, to not kind of fit into our general conception of disasters, uh, things like building up robust tree canopies and funding for air conditioning and the creation of, you know, passive cooling systems within buildings uh, become so much more, you know, important and life saving. Um, you know, I think there's a uh, a direct nexus between these things uh, that you do to keep folks safe from extreme heat and improving, you know, air quality in neighborhoods, lowering the climate impact of communities, uh, and all of those things. And I think that makes you know sense that there's a way to combine both how we address. The climate crisis and the housing crisis that we're experiencing right now. Uh, obviously, the, the report also notes tornadoes and,
1: and flooding as top threats. And I'm, I'm curious, are you know are, are federally associated housing locations that are at risk of heat waves also the ones at risk of tornadoes and flooding? Or is it typically that a, a housing complex is, is facing one of those three major threats? Because I'd imagine that the response would be different depending on if, if a a location is facing three different threats as opposed to one. Is this, you know, do most federally assisted uh, housing units at risk require a comprehensive solution that addresses heat and tornadoes and flooding or just one of the three?
6: That's a very good question. Um, typically when you talk about kind of multiple hazards, which is like a hazard is like, you know, wind, rain, or, or like Godzilla or something. Typically what you talk about, you talk about it in an all-hazards mindset. So you're looking at ways that can address, you know, multiple hazards at once. And uh, talking about uh, housing that might be at risk of heat waves and then also flooding, you know, you have things like tree canopies and things like that that could actually increase the, you know, resilience of the neighborhood to extreme heat while also, you know, like, let's say you build a green infrastructure. Uh, so you build like a embankment park or something like that. So not only are you planting trees on that embankment and providing recreational opportunities to the neighborhood that can impact its, you know, risk of heat, you're also decreasing the chance that it can flood. Uh, so there are ways to address m- multiple hazards at once. And I would say that, you know, likely a lot of, you know, the federally subsidized housing that we looked at that were At risk of extreme heat, as well as kind of these other hazards like flooding and tornadoes, you know, they are uh, predominantly located in the southern region of the United States. So there are ways that, you know, you can address these things together while also, um, you know, driving assistance to uh, communities that do desperately need it. The NLIHC report
1: also mentions the bipartisan Reforming Disaster Recovery Act, which was recently reintroduced by two senators, including uh, Susan Collins of Maine. What are some key elements to this bill and what are the chances of, of passage over the next year before the 2024 elections?
6: Oh man, uh, that's my baby. Uh, so it's, it's, so it's the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act. Um, a lot of folks don't know that so the only source for long-term disaster recovery funding, so that's funding outside of FEMA, is via HUD's uh, Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Program, or CDBGDR, uh, which if you can say five times fast, they let you be a disaster reform advocate. Um, that program doesn't exist unless Congress says that there are there's funds in it for recovery for disasters within a certain year. If the money's not there, that program doesn't exist, which means that each time Congress does fund that program, HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, has to rewrite the rules for the program and go through all of the administrative hoops to get the program set up. That means that it takes a significantly more amount of time to get these funds from Congress to the folks that are most in need of disaster assistance uh, on the ground. And it also means that states have trouble uh, preparing for the receipt of that money, uh, which can lead to you know, troubles on down the way. Uh, and so what this bill would do would say, OK, there is a long term recovery program at HUD and put into statute requirements that the majority of the vast majority of those funds go to uh, help extremely low, low and moderate income disaster survivors that the funds are being spent proportional to the need for housing as well as infrastructure, and that these funds are not being used to, you know, build an access road to a Home Depot parking lot or something like that, which we have seen uh, in the past. And, and most importantly, it also creates transparency uh, requirements so that HUD as an agency should has to publish out uh, information about where these funds are going, who's receiving these funds, not like personal information, of course, but broken down by income and, and demographics and, and that sort of thing. And then it also uh, requires that state and local governments that receive these funds will uh, 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 certify that they will administer them uh, in compliance with fair housing and civil rights laws.
1: So it seems like a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation and, and something that I'd imagine a lot of legislators from impacted areas would support. You know, Obviously, the House of Representatives is in shambles right now, uh, or at least was uh, for a while. What's the chance of this bill getting through the House? Because I, I could imagine the Senate passing it and, and Biden signing it. But what's, what's the GOP House majority's position on the bill?
6: So disasters are a funny thing. Um, it's probably one of the most bipartisan kind of subsectors of, uh, housing that you can work on. You know, I think that's the reason for that is just politically in terms of like what areas are most impacted by disasters and who represents them. And so there is a recognition on the Hill that this program needs to be permanently authorized. Uh, I think that we have had the, you know, strongest co-sponsorship, bipartisan co-sponsorship of this bill in the Senate uh, that we've ever had. Uh, and that's a kudos to Senator Collins and, and Senator Brian Schutz from from Hawaii uh, for their leadership on this issue. But as you say, you know, we're waiting to see what happens in the House uh, because it's just been so messy that, you know, I think it's it's it has been added to the many number of of excellent bills that desperately need to be passed, um, but are being uh, blocked right now by kind of the, the House dysfunction.
1: One of the other key findings of the NLIHC report is that federally assisted housing residents in rural areas are at particular risk of disasters as compared to uh, urban residents of federally assisted housing. The report says this is due to a range of factors, including, on average, older residents in rural areas, related health challenges, uh, less administrative and financial capital in rural areas, lower incomes on average. Would the reforms that we've talked about, the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act, some of the heat resilience stuff, would this be sufficient to address the particular vulnerability of rural federal housing residents, or are there additional reforms or protections required for these folks?
6: I think rural housing, uh, and specifically rural disaster recovery, is something that quite a lot of people have been talking about. I know that we're involved in discussions with our friends and partners in rural areas about how best to... To do this. I don't want to make it sound like these reforms are a panacea uh, for the impacts of hazards on every community. Every disaster is different. Every community has a different risk profile uh, and every community has different strengths uh, inherent within it to uh, meet the risk of these hazards. However, I will say that I think, you know, the Reforming Disaster Recovery Act as well as these reforms, you know, would help make a dent in that amount of risk along with, you know, a whole host of additional reforms that are necessary, both to FEMA programs, uh, USDA programs, and, and quite a few others. We've talked about a lot here,
1: but I wanted to give you a chance to provide closing thoughts if you have any.
6: I mean, I think these are all excellent questions. Uh, you know, again, I'd encourage folks to check out the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. You know, we facilitate this Disaster Housing Recovery Coalition. It's a group of over 900 local, state, and national organizations uh, working together to ensure that all disaster survivors receive the assistance that they need to fully recover. Uh, and I, I lead that work at, the, at NLIHC. So, um, you know, I encourage folks to stay aware of disaster risks in their own areas. You know, I encourage folks to go and download the FEMA app and and utilize that. Uh, that'll send emergency alerts to your phone and such, uh, and just stay safe. And uh, you know, continuing to push for a uh, you know better future.
1: That's Noah Patton, senior policy analyst for disaster recovery at the National Low Income Housing Coalition. You can learn more about the organization and read the new report about disasters and public housing. By visiting nlihc.org. That's nlihc.org. For Monday morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. We close the show today with a jazz birthday. Idris Muhammad was born this day in 1939, and he went on to lead a long and fruitful career spanning a range of musical genres, from jazz to funk, R&B, and soul. Born Leo Morris, the prolific drummer and bandleader converted to Islam in the 1960s, and changed his name. His music contains notes of radical politics and aesthetics, leaning sometimes on revolutionary motifs. Muhammad died in 2014 at age 74, with a dozen records as bandleader to his name, and countless other recordings made in collaboration with artists of the day. Happy birthday, Idris Muhammad. Here's the song, Could Heaven Ever Be Like This? That's our show for today. We want to remind our listeners that a memorial service for WPFW programmer Reverend Dr. Sandra Butler Truesdale will be held at the Kennedy Center's Terrace Theater this Wednesday, November 15th, 6 to 9 p.m. The family asks that you wear white. Rest in peace and power, Sandra Butler Truesdale and Askiya Mohammed. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns.
0: And I'm Sue Goodwin. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Join us again next Monday morning here on WPFW 89.3 FM.